Lesson 6 for January 30 to February 5. Victory in the Wilderness. Sabbath afternoon, February 30. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we open your word this week, we can trust that you are there to guide us through your Holy Spirit, but that your word may be open to us, that we may see more of your compassion, your love, and the direction you'd like each of us to go individually. We pray that as we do so, as we open your word, that we may learn lessons that will not only benefit us, but those around us too, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's read that again. Luke 19 verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When Satan heard that enmity should exist between himself and the woman, and between his seed and her seed... He knew that his work of depraving human nature would be interrupted. Yet, as the plan of salvation was more fully unfolded, Satan rejoiced with his angels that, having caused man's fall, he could bring down the Son of God from his exalted position. He declared that his plans had thus far been successful upon the earth, and that when Christ should take upon himself human nature, he also might be overcome, and thus the redemption of the fallen race might be prevented. That's a quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 66. This week, as we look at the temptations in the wilderness, we can see, as perhaps never before so clearly revealed in the Bible, the great controversy between Christ and Satan as it is openly battled out between them. Satan had claimed the world as his, and Christ came to win it back. And central to his winning it back was the plan of salvation. Having failed to kill Jesus after his birth, Satan tried another way to sabotage the redemption of the race. This we see unfold in the wilderness temptations. Sunday, January 31. Emmanuel to the rescue. Question. Read Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. What is the significance of the name given to Jesus, Emmanuel? Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Why did Jesus come to the earth to be with us? First, he came to restore dominion, the dominion that Adam lost, as we read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offence. For if by the one man's offence many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. We catch a glimpse of the royal aspect of Jesus having dominion when he inspired the crowds. Five thousand wanted to crown him king, and when the children sang their hosannas, a form of praise directed at one who would save the people from their enemies. We also see his powers over creation, such as with his ability to restore broken humans into whole human beings again. For example, the man born blind, and the woman who bled for twelve years, and in his power over nature, such as when he stilled the storm and told the wind and the waves to be still. Second, he came to bring judgment and to destroy the works of the devil, as you read in John chapter 9 and verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. And First John chapter 3 verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. How often do we wonder why evil prospers? Jesus addresses injustice and reassures us that the end is in sight. Jesus was recognized by demons as having power over them. They would often scream out his true identity, sometimes before Jesus was ready to reveal it. He gave peace to demon-possessed people and restored them to sanity when others would flee in fear. Third, Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost, as we read in Luke 19.10, and to take away their sins, as we also read in John 1.29. He was made like us, so that he could be a faithful high priest and so restore us to God, as we read in Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. From the book Justification, God's Plan and Paul's Vision by N.T. Wright, we read on page 1462, Dealing with sin, saving humans from it, giving them grace, forgiveness, justification, glorification, all this was the purpose of the single covenant from the beginning, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. End of quote. Finally, Jesus came to show us what God is like, to reveal to us and to the onlooking universe what his true character really is. And so to finish today. How can and should each of these reasons for Christ's coming enhance your life and walk with the Lord?
Monday, February 1. Jesus' Baptism The appearance of John the Baptist must have sent ripples of excitement throughout the region. He was someone who looked like the prophet Elijah, as we read in Matthew 3.4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And we'll compare that with Second Kings 1 verse 8. So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. He was the first prophetic voice the people had heard in 400 years. God had never been silent for so long before. Now he was speaking to the people once again. Obviously, something significant was about to happen. Question. Read Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through to 12. Why would John the Baptist connect themes of judgment, the wrath to come, in verse 7, the axe laid to the root of the trees, verse 10, thoroughly purging the threshing floor, verse 12, and burning chaff in unquenchable fire, in verse 12 as well, in his introduction to the Messiah. Matthew 3, beginning at verse 7, Now when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, Bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The people thought they were living in the last days. They saw John come from the wilderness and encourage them to pass through the waters of the Jordan through baptism. This was a bit like a new exodus, and getting wet, rather than walking across a dried-up riverbed, was necessary for cleansing and readiness for the new promised land, with the Messiah himself leading them from victory over the Romans to the ushering in of God's eternal kingdom spoken of by the prophets. At least... That's what many people had thought. But neither John nor Jesus was leading a political movement. It was a salvation event. The explanation by Luke of what John was doing is a quotation from Isaiah, describing the way God would prepare a road for the exiles to return to the promised land. Let's look in Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through to 6. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Jeremiah explains the reason for making that special road 
to make it manageable for the society's most vulnerable, the blind, the lame, the pregnant, mothers with toddlers, and for all others who desired to return to the promised land to be able to do so. No wonder the people flocked to John. Their hope was kindled that they too could be ready for the great day of God soon to be upon them. It came, however, in a way that most of them didn't expect. Not because they hadn't been told, but because they didn't understand the meaning of the Scriptures. As we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 25 through to 27, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And so to finish today, faithful people had deep misconceptions about the nature of the Lord's first coming. How might faithful people in the last days avoid having deep misconceptions about the nature of his second one? Tuesday, February 4, Stones into Bread Question. Read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What is happening, and why? How do we see the great controversy being played out here? Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 114, When Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted, he was led by the Spirit of God. He did not invite temptation. He went to the wilderness to be alone, to contemplate his mission and work. By fasting and prayer, he was to brace himself for the blood-stained path he must travel. But Satan knew that the Saviour had gone into the wilderness, and he thought this the best time to approach him. End of quote. There are dramatic parallels between the account of Jesus' temptations and the experience of the Israelites in their Exodus wanderings. After coming through water, Jesus went into the desert, where he ate nothing and was tested for forty days. Similarly, the Israelites passed through water, that's the Red Sea, entered the desert, where they had no bread, and stayed there for forty years. Notice how it is described in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger. The Gospel account says that after forty days, Jesus was hungry in chapter 4 verse 2. Then someone appears with helpful advice, a bit like Job's comforters. This was not the first time Satan is depicted as coming to help someone in crisis. 
Zechariah 3 records a story of the high priest at the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. And he stood before God in vision. Someone appeared at his right hand. The one who stood at the right hand was always the most trusted friend to protect and guard against any would-be attacker. But the trusted right-hand man in Zechariah 3 was none other than the accuser pretending to be a trusted friend. The same thing happened to Jesus in the wilderness. The one who came to help revealed himself when he said in Matthew 4.3, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. An angel from God would have no doubt about Jesus' divinity. Again, notice how Jesus replied in verse 4. It's a quotation linked to the Exodus. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. God fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so to finish today, however important not to fall prey to temptation, how much more important is it to make sure that you, even unwittingly, aren't leading someone else into it? Wednesday, February 3, Another Temptation The first temptation parallels the Exodus, but had its roots in the fall. By placing a priority on faithfulness to God instead of giving in to appetite, Jesus recovered the ground that Adam lost at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, to completely bridge the gap from where the human race had descended since the time of Adam, Jesus had to be subjected to two more temptations. According to Matthew, the second temptation involved Satan taking Jesus to the highest part of the temple, presumably the southeast corner that overlooked a steep ravine. Again came the taunting statement, If you are the Son of God, which showed that the tempter was no friend of Jesus. Question. What is Satan really getting at here? Would it have proved anything if Jesus did jump? Let's look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through to 7. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus was not interested in cheap theatrics. His trust in God was genuine, not something contrived to impress others. Jesus' complete trust in his Father was manifested in his leaving heaven and becoming a human being, suffering the indignation, the misrepresentation, the public humiliation, and the injustice of his death, as expressed in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, my second favorite part of the Bible. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This was his destiny and he was fully prepared for it. His mission was to reclaim the world that Adam and his descendants lost. In Jesus, all the covenant promises were to be fulfilled, and the world would have an opportunity for salvation. Again, Jesus responds with, It is written, again quoting Deuteronomy, and again linking his experience to the Exodus. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa, Deuteronomy 6.16. Massa was the place where the Israelites bitterly complained about lack of water, and Moses struck the rock to provide it. In evaluating this experience, Moses stated that the people had tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Exodus 17.7. Jesus, of course, knew better and didn't fall for the trick, even though this time the devil threw the phrase, It is written, twice in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 and 6, back at him. And so to finish today, it's not always easy to see the boundary between trusting in God for the miraculous and being presumptuous in regard to what we expect from the Lord when we pray. How have you learned to know one from the other? Bring your answer to class on Sabbath. Thursday, February 4, Devil Worship. In Matthew's version, while the first temptation focused on appetite and the second on manipulating God, the third was a direct challenge to Christ himself, to his kingship and to his ultimate mission on earth. Question. Read Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through to 10, Deuteronomy 34, 1-4, and Revelation 21, verse 10. What is the significance of the exceeding high mountain? that Satan took Jesus to. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 8, Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And Deuteronomy 34, beginning at verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Bizkar, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar, then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. 
I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. And Revelation chapter 21 and verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Judging by the way the Bible uses the theme of going up to the top of a very high mountain to view nations, we can see that Jesus' trip was no sightseeing tour. There is prophetic vision attached to this scenario. From a mountaintop, Moses sees the promised land as it would later be, and John later sees the future New Jerusalem. Similarly, Jesus sees more than just the countries of the ancient Roman world. Notice that Satan shows off everything in its best light. He shows the riches and the glamour, not the crime, suffering and injustice. Satan then says, as in Matthew 4.9, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In the same way that Satan filled Adam and Eve into wanting to become like God, when they already were created in his image, Satan pretended that he was God, and that the ownership of the nations of the world was exclusively his, and that, for a little homage, he would easily give it all to Jesus. As we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomsoever I wish. And in Psalm 2, verses 7 to 8, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. This test focused on loyalty. Who should the human race give ultimate loyalty to? In Eden, when Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent, they were really giving Satan their first loyalty, and that infection spread quickly through each successive generation. Without direct divine intervention, the great controversy would have been decided in favour of Satan. The human race, and maybe even life on earth, could not have continued. The stakes were that high. Notice that Jesus, like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, did not permit evil to stay near him. Jesus commanded Satan to go away. Joseph could not do that, so he removed himself from the scene of potential evil. What a simple lesson for us as well. Let's check that out at Genesis chapter 39, verses 11 and 12. But it happened about this time, when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and fled, and ran outside. To finish the day, in all three of these temptations, Jesus used scripture as his defense. What does that mean to us in practical terms? That is, how can we, when faced with temptation, use Scripture in order to have the same kind of victories?
Friday, February 5. Though one can find writers through the centuries touching on the theme of the great controversy, and though some evangelicals today are looking at the idea more closely, no one has a deeply developed great controversy worldview as does the Seventh-day Adventist Church. A literal, physical, moral and spiritual conflict between Christ and Satan is indeed a crucial hallmark of Adventist thought. And no wonder, all through the Bible, there is what one evangelical writer has called the cosmic warfare theme, and sometimes, such as in this week's lesson on the temptations in the wilderness, that theme appears in a very stark and open manner. The idea of a battle between good and evil can be seen even outside a distinctly religious context. For instance, poet T.S. Eliot wrote, the world turns and the world changes, but one thing does not change. In all of my years, one thing does not change. The perpetual struggle of good and evil. And German atheist Friedrich Nitschke wrote, Let us conclude that two opposing values, good and bad, good and evil, have been engaged in a fearful struggle on earth for thousands of years. Scripture aided by the spirit of prophecy, reveals as nothing else does the true nature of this conflict and the eternal issues at stake in it. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, in class, go over your answers to Wednesday's question about the line, the boundary between trusting in God's promises for the miraculous and that of being presumptuous. How do we know the difference? Two, Temptation comes in many forms and shapes and sizes and colours and modes, all carefully designed to reach each of us where we are. And of course, some things that tempt one person don't tempt another. Besides the obvious sins, what are the more subtle ways in which we can be tempted? And three, read over the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness and the humiliation that he was subjected to. As you do, think about the fact that this same Jesus was indeed God with us. He was the one through whom all things were made, as it says in John 1.3. How can we grasp the incredible concept here that that of God, God enduring this fearful struggle in our behalf? Considering this truth, what else matters? Inside Story Before we begin our Inside Story today, I just want to share with you some of the news that I got just a day or so ago. It deals with this Sabbath School Lesson podcast. It's been running now for eight years on the internet and for almost 20 years for the blind in Australia and New Zealand. And... This podcast now is spread around the world through the wonders of the internet and the report that I received shows that it's actually being downloaded in 20 countries. The uh, most popular one is the United States. The next is the Caribbean countries, 
countries like Barbados and Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago and the Bahamas and Dominica and the Virgin Islands, um, all the way through to the Philippines. Uh, the second, uh, the, th the third most common is uh, United Kingdom, Brazil, Australia, and then Canada and South Africa. And I just want to thank each of you for listening because uh, as I'm reading these lessons, I'm trying to imagine who could be listening. And uh, some of you have actually contacted me through Facebook or via email. And uh, it's been lovely to be able to communicate with you. But let's get on with our inside story, Finding True Gold, Part 2. The story so far. Amy's parents divorced and he and his mother moved to a village on the Amazon. Later he served in the military. Afterward, Amir went to his brother's home, looked for gold, but instead found heavenly gold. Wanting to share his treasure, he visited his sister, later married, and eventually moved back to his home village and became the community teacher. A Seventh-day Adventist friend heard that Amir and Francinette had moved to this village and wanted to help them start a church there. They joined them. They began meeting together each Sabbath under some trees by the river. Soon other villagers began noticing them and wanted to join in their worship. Amir started giving Bible studies and the group continued to grow. It didn't take long for word to reach Amir's mother about what was going on. She was so ashamed to learn that her son was a Seventh-day Adventist that she unblessed him as her son and cursed him. Amir and Francinette began praying for his mother, but things only seemed to get worse. As soon as they started studying the Bible with someone, the next day Amir's mother would go to the person and tell them that what Amir was teaching was a lie. But we believed that at the right moment God would do something, says Amir. The people were open-hearted and they accepted the message. More and more villagers shared with others the truth they had found through Amir's Bible studies. And the group meeting under the tree by the river grew so large that they decided to build a Seventh-day Adventist church. A pastor from their local conference office came to baptise the new believers and to officially organise the church. Today, the church that began with just one family now has 113 members. When Amir's mother saw how quickly the Adventist church was growing, she contacted her priest and asked that he establish a church in the village. However, her personal life was unravelling and soon she was divorced again. Disheartened, Amir's mother decided to move away. Amazingly, however, the Bible teaching she heard had influenced her. She had come to understand the truth of the seventh-day Sabbath, but was ashamed to keep it. But once she moved, she began to secretly keep the Sabbath. For God the Father, she said, and kept going to church on Sunday for Jesus. God continued working on her heart, and after a series of Bible studies, she came to accept the entire Adventist message and was baptised. She then returned to her village to encourage her brothers to accept the treasure that she and Amir have found. One of the 13th Sabbath offering projects is to build a floating church that will be used to reach more people of these remote Amazon villages. 
For more stories and information, visit https colon backward slash backward slash am dot adventistmission dot org slash mq dash adult. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. Thank you.